Psalm 2 today. I want to talk to you about the subject of living with confidence in a chaotic world. Now, over the past a few weeks now, the world has watched as another war has been ignited when Russia invaded neighboring Ukraine. The conflict uh, was setting up to be a classic David versus Goliath. Experts predicted that uh, Vladimir Putin's superior forces would capture Kiev in just a matter of days, but with everything to lose, the people of Ukraine have put up stiff resistance fighting for their freedom. We've seen several images that portray the desperate struggle of the Ukrainian people. We've seen unarmed Ukrainians standing in the streets blocking the paths of Russian tanks. We've seen kitchens and basements improvised into weapon depots where they're collecting bottles to make Molotov cocktails. There was a news camera that captured a, a poignant moment of a small group of Ukrainian citizens that were huddled together in their town square, kneeling in the frigid cold, praying for God's protection and, and God's intervention. And then there are the brave Ukrainian pastors who did not retreat, but they resolved to stay at their post and to encourage their people. In fact, I found a statement on social media this week from one pastor in Ukraine. Here's what he wrote on his post. Listen carefully. He said, for us, this is no surprise. We all knew it was coming. But please don't forget us, dear brothers and sisters in Christ. Instead, stand firm on the promises of the Lord. He said, reading and praying over the Psalms is getting me through these difficult times right now. It's good to remember that God always gets justice in the end. Eternity is waiting. Fellow believers, he wrote, I beg of you, cry out to God to save the Ukrainian people. Open a map of Ukraine on Google and pray over it. Ask the Lord to put His hand of protection on us. Cry out for a spiritual awakening among the Russian and the Belarusian people. Pray that evil will be defeated. It's hard to ignore a statement like that when it appears in your Newsfeed, And yes, the Ukraine situation is bad. And if that weren't enough, it's not the only crisis that's uh, filling up our attention right now. Just the last month, we saw convoys of Canadian truckers as they risked their livelihoods protesting the tyrannical mandates of their government. Many of you watched that as these brave men and women uh, but the, basically everything on the line to fight for their freedoms. And then there is the situation in the United States, which is uh, deteriorating rapidly. Many Americans are concerned because our southern border is wide open, because uh, critical race theory and transgenderism has infiltrated our schools. And uh, we are all experiencing the pain of inflation, which they say are the highest rates in 40 years. And it makes you pause and ask the question, if your agenda was to destroy this country, what differently would you do than what's already being done? But without a proper perspective, it's easy to be consumed by the chaos 
and give in to headline hysteria. As you hear about these things, it seems as if the next news item is more, uh, more grieving, more hysterical, more fear-inducing than the previous one. And it is difficult to trust in, in God that He has control over the events of your life if you do not trust that God has control over the big picture, the outworking of nations in history. But the flip side of that is it is easy to trust that God has your life in His hands if you trust that God has the whole world in His hands. And that is the message of Psalm 2 to us today. You see, the Bible has much to say about the nations of the world, whether they be Russia or China or Ukraine or United States of America. The Bible has much to say about their origins and their alliances, their political plans, their military might, and their ultimate destiny. And in Psalm 2, we find an ancient song with a timeless and a very relevant message for us right now. In fact, one commentator has called Psalm 2, he's coined it as God's foreign policy. I like that. Now, Psalm 2, just to give you some fast facts, happens to be the most oft-quoted of the Psalms in the New Testament. It's quoted from in the New Testament 18 times. Now, it has no superscription identifying its author, but when the apostles quoted from Psalm 2 in the book of Acts, they attributed this psalm to David. And you can see that in Acts 4.25 and 13.33. More importantly, Psalm 2 is prophetic in nature. It points forward foretelling the future of nations and the triumphant rule of the Messiah King, Jesus Christ. Now, Psalm 2 is full of hope for the child of God today because it reminds us that you can live confidently in a world full of chaos, that God has not abrogated His throne, that He's not backed up to punt to some kind of plan B, but that God has it all under control. So as we turn into Psalm chapter 2 this morning and we think about all the world events swirling around us, I want you to read with me the first three verses. And as you do, you'll notice, number one, the rebellion of the states. The rebellion of the states. Let's read it together. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, if you've studied news for the past few decades, you know that it is next to impossible to get world leaders to agree on anything. Just look at our own government. But in the first stanza, the psalmist describes a global coalition of world leaders who have unanimously agreed, get this, to go to war against God. Warren Wiersbe, the great Bible commentator, he wrote this, quote, From the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 to the crucifixion of Christ in the Gospels to the Battle of Armageddon in Revelation 19, the Bible records man's foolish and futile rebellions against the will of his creator. And so what you need to see here this morning is that man's real problem 
Man's real struggle, his conflict, is against God's spiritual authority. That's the rebellion of the states. Now, there's a couple things in here I want you to see. What are they plotting? Well, first off, they plot the death of God's Messiah. Notice what it says in verse 2. They've taken counsel together and against the Lord and against His anointed. The target of their revolt is directed against the Lord and His anointed. A reference to Messiah, Jesus Christ. In fact, in Acts chapter 4, verses 25 through 28, the apostles quote this same stanza in relation to Jesus' crucifixion at the hands of the Jewish and the Roman leaders, Caiaphas and Herod and Pilate. And they are saying in that passage that the execution of God's sinless Son was the ultimate act of the nation's rebellion against God. When you take God's perfect, holy, and sinless Son and you beat Him, you put Him on trial, you pluck out His beard, you spit upon Him, you crown Him with thorns, and you nail Him to a tree, that's war against God. Now, make no bones about it, the world is still hostile toward Jesus and his followers who take his name, amen? In fact, remember what Jesus said to us in John 15 and verse 20, remember the word that I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Don't expect this world to do you any favors, to pat you on the back, or to take you as a friend. If you take the name of Jesus the same way that they attack Jesus, they'll attack you and me because they hate God. Paul said the same thing. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, Paul writing to his young preaching protege, he said, Indeed, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, we've seen in this country how COVID kind of unleashed the beast and revealed the government's animosity toward the church. We saw that in 2020 and beyond. Did you know right now, as an example, there's an ongoing legal battle in California State between Santa Clara County and Calvary Chapel of San Jose. Have you read about this? Well, there's a headline, South Bay Church finds $2.8 million for COVID violations and then it says, hasn't paid a cent as a lawsuit drags on. You just thought our government and our culture was friendly to the church. Listen to this. The church is being sued by Santa Clara County for $2.8 million in unpaid violations that the church was charged with from 2020 to 2021. And you think, gosh, what could their crime have been? <laughs> what were they doing? Attacking politicians and, 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 and doing sedition against the state here's what the article summarized the county has argued that the church created a public nuisance and endangered the community at large by defying social distancing and masking regulations by continually hosting indoor worship services did you hear that church the crime for which they are being charged the fine of 2.8 million dollars was they obeyed the bible and they had church that's the crime. You read that story and you expect that kind of tyranny in China or Iran, but not these United States of America. We need to wake up and realize the culture, the government doesn't love the church. 
They just tolerate us. No wonder many Americans are feeling like I don't recognize my country anymore. We're turning into some kind of police state. They're going to shut me on Facebook. That's the plot. They plot the death of God's Messiah. But then notice this. They plot the destruction of God's morals. Verse 3. Notice what the text says. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Another target of the wicked is that they aim to do away with God's moral law. Let me tell you, this is the most hated book on planet earth. You can just go downtown Asheville, open up Romans 1, and they'll throw everything in the kitchen sink at you because it's hate speech. That's what verse 3 tells me. They want to throw off the cords and the bonds. You see, like a caged beast, the powers of this world want to throw off God's rules and restraint so that they can live any way they want to without moral accountability. The person who's the skeptic, who's the atheist, uh, really what they want is autonomy from God. It's not that the evidence doesn't lead them to atheism. It's that they don't want there to be a God. They want to be their own God. That's why when dictators take power, whether their name is Putin or Hitler or Stalin or Mao, what's the first thing that they do? They start burning Bibles. They start imprisoning the pastors. They start bulldozing and bullying the churches. Why? Because the church is supposed to be the conscience of the state. We're not the servant of the state. We're not above the state, but we're the conscience. We're the voice of God's moral law to our society. And when that moral law doesn't go with their agenda, what do they have to do? Remove the conscience. Remove the problem people. Vilify them. Maybe the most graphic example of this are the nations that have adopted Marxism, which is really atheism at its core. You see, the nations that have adopted verse 3, let's just throw off all restraint, let's get rid of God, kick Him out of the schools, kick Him out of the justice system, kick Him out of our homes and families, and let's just have man be the measure of all things. What does that look like? Well, turn to your nearest Marxist country and you get a vision for what that's like. In 1999, the Black Book of Communism attempted to calculate a death toll for the nations during the 20th century who adopted Marxism. So they looked at all the countries that adopted Psalm 2 and verse 3. How did they fare? It revealed the study that the most colossal case of carnage in history in Latin America, there were 150,000 deaths where Marxism ruled. Eastern Europe, one million deaths. Vietnam, one million deaths. These are dictators killing their own people, by the way. Africa, 1.7 million deaths. Cambodia, 2 million deaths. North Korea, 2 million deaths. USSR, 20 million deaths. China, 65 million. Approximately 93 million deaths that they can estimate. Friend, the loss of life is greater than all the total deaths from both world wars combined and doubled. So the skeptic, the, the politician, the, the, the silk-tongued orator may claim, oh, we don't need God, we can be good without God. The problem is 
There's no uh, example from the history books where that actually works out okay. I don't want to live in a country like that and neither do you. So recognize it when you see it coming and fight against it and reject it and stand up with all that is in you, the Spirit of God, and say, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And as you study this, this explains a lot of the moral transformation that has happened in our nation. All the swift change that we've seen in the past few years to normalize sexual perversion, to promote abortion, to indoctrinate children with critical race theory, to implement socialist agendas. This explains it because the ultimate design of the wicked is to transform America and to create a one world global government. And the only way that you can transform America is you have to destroy the family, you have to degrade the Constitution, and you have to silence the Christian voice. That's the battle that we are in as a country. And so a turning point has to come where we recognize the rebellion of the nations. We need to understand what we're up against and understand that if we don't stand up and if we don't take moral courage within ourselves, we could be going past a point of no return of transformation in our country. But I believe there's enough Bible believers. I believe there's enough spirit-filled praying mamas and daddies. I believe there's enough patriots. I believe there's enough Bible-believing Christians still in this land who will say, not on my watch, I read Psalm 2, I understand the rebellion of the nations, and I'm standing with my Bible and my pastor and my Savior and my church, and I'm not going to let it go by the wayside. The Bible says here that human rebellion to divine authority is vain. <laughs> it doesn't get you anything is what the psalmist says in this text. We hear that all the time in our culture, whether it's the LBGT culture or the, the Black Lives Matter culture or the secularist. They say we can, we can be free. But let me ask you a question. Is a tree really free when the wind uproots it from the soil? Is a fish really free when the fisherman's hook pulls the fish out of its habitat in the water? Is a train really free when it derails and continues to travel outside the direction of the tracks? And the answer is no. And we are not free when we rebel against the authority of God. That leads to sin. That leads to death. That leads to destruction. So we need to see, number one, the rebellion of the nations. What we're seeing now in our world is nothing new. The psalmist saw it. But then I want you to notice, number two, this morning, the reaction of the sovereign. What does God think about the rebellion and the raging of the nations? Notice verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. There's an old saying, friend, that goes like this. If you want to make God laugh, just tell him your plans. And as the kings and the presidents make their plans, the Bible says that God, 
God horse laughs them for their foolishness. And to my knowledge, I think this is the only place in the Bible where God's laughter is mentioned. And in other words, notice this. Human rebellion is divine comedy. God is amused by the pathetic attempts to impeach him. And notice this. He's not laughing with us. He's laughing at us. Let me ask you a question. You think God is laughing at our leaders today? You see, God is not just America's only hope. God is America's greatest threat. And I would fear what God could do to us more than Russia or China or whoever may point a big bomb in our direction. (laughs) Just as an illustration of this, some of you may remember this, sports fans, but in 2013, the owner of the Memphis Grizzlies NBA team, a billionaire named Robert Para challenged, listen to this, Michael Jordan to a game of one-on-one. The wager was $1 million to go to charity. Even though the GOAT, and there's really no debate about it, even though the GOAT, the greatest of all time, was in his 50s at the time of that wager, when Michael Jordan heard about the wager, you know what he did? (laughs) He laughed. Now, if that sounds ridiculous, how much more absurd is it To think that the finite can overthrow the infinite. That the creature can contend with the creator. Love what Bible scholar John Phillips noted here on this passage. He wrote, quote, Man has successfully orbited some hardware in space, but he used material God supplied. Everything that we do creatively piggybacks off what God did in the first six days of creation. He said, man has put a feeble footprint on the moon, but how can he compete with a God who has orbited a hundred million galaxies? Man has solved some of the subtleties of the atom and managed to scare himself half to death in the process, but God stokes the nuclear fires of a billion trillion stars. No wonder, he said, the Almighty sits in the heavens and simply laughs. Man, for all his technology and talents, for all his science and skill, for all his inventions, is still man, made of dust and destined to die. And God is God, eternal, uncreated, self-existent, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, infinite, infallible, holy, high, lifted up and worshipped by countless of angel throngs. Somebody in the house of God say amen. Praise God, we've got a Savior in heaven who don't have to watch Fox News to figure out what's going to happen next. Praise God, there's no nervous floor pacing in heaven. God didn't stand it on the balcony of heaven chewing his fingernails. Oh, what am I going to do next, Son and Holy Spirit? What are we going to do to fix this mess down there on earth? You see, friend, when there's chaos in earth, there's calm in the throne room of God. The Bible says he looks down and he laughs in derision. If that don't encourage your heart today with all the things swirling about in this world, that God's still in control. You see, God laughed when Pharaoh thought he had Moses and the Israelites cornered at the Red Sea. (laughs) I'm going to show you something, Pharaoh, you've never seen before. And he spread out a red carpet at the Red Sea and they walked over on dry ground, the Bible said. God laughed when Belshazzar's knees there in Babylon started knocking back and forth and God's hand wrote on the wall, uh, waited, waited, divided, and numbered. (laughs) And God laughed 
when the king of Syria thought that he had the prophet Elisha and his servant outnumbered. But what Elisha said to his servant, he said, Open your eyes and look. Greater are them who surround us than those who have arrayed in battle. And God's angel armies had surrounded the king of Syria. Oh, Pilate. God laughed when Pilate sealed the tomb of Jesus rolled a stone in front and put the Roman seal in front. But how many of you know it ain't over till God says it's over? God, God is in control. Man plays checkers, but God plays 4D chess. He's way ahead. Man proposes, but God disposes. And friend, man's arms are too short to box with God. There was a headline that I saw. It caught my eye just before Russia invaded Ukraine. I don't know if you saw this or not. This tells me God's in control. Even my, of course, the Bible does, but notice this. The headline, we need more Bibles. Here's what the article said. The thirst for hope and the spread of uncertainty has been so rampant in Ukraine that bookstores have totally run out of Bibles. Robert Briggs, the president and CEO of the American Bible Society, wrote this, quote, Many Ukrainians are experiencing the Bible's message for the first time. Do you see what's happened? The threats have come in, the war has broke out, and all of a sudden people's life and death priorities are reordered and they're thinking to themselves, I've got to find hope. I've got to find help. There's got to be something beyond this life. And they rush the stores looking for the holy and pure word of God. Can somebody tell me where the answers are? You talk about an unintended consequence of war. And there's no telling how many people have been driven to their knees in prayer or been drawn to Jesus Christ as Savior because of this crisis. Nobody wants to see the carnage. Nobody wants to see the bloodshed or the dislocation of war. But if you know your Bible like I know my Bible, my God works through the evil of this world to bring about good. Well, that's the rebellion of the states. And then number two, the reaction of the sovereign. And then number three, I want you to notice today the reign of the sun. The reign of the sun. Let's read in verse 7 down to verse 9. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And you shall break them with a rod of iron and shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. A bit of background. Psalm 2 is known as a coronation psalm. In Israel's day of monarchy, when a new king ascended to the throne, they would be anointed with oil, they would be crowned, and then this psalm would be recited. But this psalm also falls into the category of double fulfillment because it's really about a king greater than any other king. This applied to the ancient kings descended from David, but it also points forward prophetically to the coming king of kings from the house of David who would rule with absolute authority from God's holy hill or Jerusalem. And it can fit only one person, and that is Jesus Christ. And what you see here as you read between the lines, 
is a divine dialogue between God the Father and God the Son. Notice the language. You are my son. Today I have begotten me. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. Who's he talking to? God the Father talking to God the Son. And God the Father is handing over control of the earth to Jesus Christ. In Acts 13, Paul preaches from this passage. And he explains in that passage that Jesus' death and resurrection from the dead proved that he had conquered sin and Satan and the grave. And that victory right there qualifies him to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now the ultimate fulfillment of this passage happens when Jesus returns back to this earth. Have you heard the news? He's coming back, friend. And I'm glad for it because this world's growing dimmer and darker by the day. And when he comes, he'll put a sudden sweeping into the rebellion of the nations. Some of us whine and complain, why doesn't God do something? Oh, God is going to do something, friend. And when he does, there'll be no man standing in his way. The Bible says that Christ will destroy his enemies with ease, effortlessly. Like someone smashing fragile clay pots with an iron rod. That's what the verse says. In fact, this very same imagery is used in other prophetic passages to talk about the return of Christ. Notice the pattern. Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 4. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Revelation 19 and verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with what church? A rod of iron. And will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Yes, God is love. Yes, God is mercy. Yes, God is grace. But friend, we need to realize in the church today that God is also holy. That God is also righteous. That God is also a just judge. And He must punish sin. He must balance the scales. He must wipe away all evil if He is really God. You see these scriptures right here that I just cited. You know what they point to? The war to end all wars. And I'm not talking about Ukraine and China. Or Ukraine and Russia. I'm talking about Armageddon. The Bible talks about it in Revelation 19. It's the meeting point of all history. At one moment, a man who will rule the earth known as the Antichrist, he'll be strutting across the world stage. He'll have all the firepower that man can muster. And the Bible says that all the armies will gather at a place called Megiddo. Napoleon, one of the great European generals, went there and he looked upon this battlefield. He said it's the most perfect staging ground in all the earth for a battle. But my Bible says that God's going to put hooks in the jaws of the world leaders and He's going to drag them out to Megiddo. And just when they've got their tanks and their bombs and their bullets and everything that they can muster pointed to the eastern sky, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is coming back. The sky will open. A word will be given. And He'll defeat all of His enemies with just a whisper. You see, friend, we need to realize today, the first time that he came, he came as a lamb. But the next time he comes, he's coming as a lion. The first time he came, he rode 
a donkey humbly through the streets of Jerusalem. But the next time he comes, he's riding on the clouds of glory and he's got a white war stallion underneath him. The first time he came, he wore the rags of poverty. But the next time he comes, praise God, he's wearing the royal robes of a king. The first time he came, the angel preached to the shepherds, Peace on earth and goodwill to men. But the next time he comes, Revelation 19 says he's coming out to make war and to judge. The first time he came, he came to lay down his life. But the second time he comes, he'll be coming to take life. The first time he came, the Bible says he came unto his own, and his own received him not. But the next time he comes, oh, it's going to be different, friend. (laughs) They're going to say, make way for the king, and every eye will see him. If that don't cause something inside of you to raise up and say, praise God, friend, check your wood. It may be wet today. But I love that story that Mark Hitchcock tells in one of his books about a dad who had come home from a long, hard day of work. Some of you dads know exactly what I'm talking about. Plopped down in the easy chair. He was so exhausted from the day. And his little boy ran up to him, got in his lap and said, Daddy, let's go out and throw the ball. And I'm guilty, I've done it before. Son, just give me five minutes to catch my breath. I don't even know what day of the week it is. Well, the little boy persisted. And if you've got little kids, you know what that's about. Daddy, come on, let's play. Daddy, I've been waiting on you. Daddy, I'll go get your glove. I got the ball already. Well, this dad, he just needed, he just needed five, ten minutes. He looked down on the coffee table. He saw a magazine. And he saw beside that was some of the, do- the boys' school supplies. So he opened up that magazine, that dad, and he had a bright idea. He tore out a page. It was the planet Earth. He took those scissors on the table, and he cut it up like a jigsaw puzzle into various pieces, and he handed it over to his son. He said, son, take this to your room and take this tape with you. He said, put this together. Put the pieces where they need to be. He said, bring it back to me, and when you're done, you go out and play. Well, the dad didn't think that his son would be as quick as he was. Five minutes later, that boy come back. He'd scotch-taped everything together. The dad popped up in his chair. He said, son, how in the world did you put that thing together so fast? The boy explained. He said, daddy, he said, flip it over. He flipped it over, and he saw a picture of Jesus on the back side of that. He said, it was real easy, dad. He said, I put... Jesus together and when Jesus came together the world came together and friend I'm telling you the answer isn't in the United Nations the answer isn't in man when you get Jesus and you put Jesus in the middle of the picture oh the whole world is in his hands and what's broken will be put back together and what's in pieces will be reconciled you can do that for the world or you can do that for an individual life when you put Jesus in the middle of it friend it don't stay the same he transforms it he makes it good and glorious and better than it's ever been before all hail the power of Jesus name let angels prostrate fall bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all you see friend listen to me today it's not a matter of what is this world coming to but who is coming to this world 
My hope's not in the White House. My hope is not in the CDC or the almighty dollar. No, I don't agree with the direction of this nation. I dread what's coming to America. But here's one thing I know. At the same time, I'm excited. Because as I read the Word of God, I see all the signs pointing to one obvious truth. That this world is being prepared. That everything is being settled and staged for the return of Jesus Christ. And my confidence in the Word of God hasn't diminished at all. My joy and my salvation can't be taken by a virus. My joy and my salvation can't be taken by a war. Friend, don't lose your focus because you look up and you see the scoreboard and it says that the bad guys are winning. My God's still in control. He gets the last laugh. He gets the last word. It's all going to change in a moment in a twinkling of an eye with a trumpet blast and a call from above. Come up hither. Friend, while this world is preparing for a war, I'm a child of God and I'm preparing for a wedding at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Number four, and I'm done. The refuge of the surrendered. The refuge of the surrendered. We saw the rebellion of the states, the reaction of the sovereign, the reign of the son, the refuge of the surrendered. Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see, the psalm ends with God's terms of surrender. The wicked don't have to perish. The sinner doesn't have to go to a devil's hell. God is merciful. He offers them an olive branch of peace. He offers them a refuge, the Bible says, in Verse 11 and 12. What is a refuge? A refuge is a place of safety. It's a place of security. And there's only one refuge that we can find that in. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. Where we gain access to God's Son and the forgiveness of sin and mercy and forgiveness. And the way that we enter into that refuge. Notice what he says in verse 12. Kiss the Son. That's not a kiss of affection. That's a kiss of allegiance. You see, this is coming from Bible culture. And when a vanquished ruler surrendered to a conquering king, the conquering king would offer his hand to the vanquished. And upon his hand was the royal signet ring. And the way that that vanquished enemy would pledge his allegiance to the conquering king was to kiss the hand. Kiss the signet ring showing that he had surrendered to a superior force. And friend, that's what we must do. Individually and corporately as a church and as a nation, as a people, we must kiss the Son in surrender. Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, quote, Fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms and surrender to Christ. Those are the terms of peace. On April 9, 1865, the Civil War finally ended. With no way to keep fighting, Confederate General Robert E. Lee sent a message to the 
Union General Ulysses S. Grant for a meeting. As Lee and Grant sat in the parlor of the Appomattox Courthouse, the terms of surrender were drawn up. The gist was simple, Grant explained. He told Lee, have your men put down their arms and go home. Together, we can rebuild this country. Your men can keep their horses and mules and return back to their farms with no fear of retribution. Lee was stunned at such generous terms and he agreed. And later on, before he was assassinated, President Lincoln gave Grant one of the greatest nicknames ever. That U.S., Ulysses S. Grant, U.S., he said it actually stood for unconditional surrender. And that name stuck. And when Lincoln was asked why he didn't punish the rebel army, here's what he said. He said, am I not destroying my enemies when I make them my friends? And friend, those are the same terms that God gives to rebellious sinners. Unconditional surrender. You can go to heaven God's way or you can go to hell your own way. We can either bow the knee and kiss the sun in humility now or in humiliation later. And the question is, as you come to the end of Psalm 2 is, are you living today as a rebel or are you living as a surrendered subject of the King of Kings? So I wonder today as we close, as our musicians come to prepare for invitation, what has God said to you today that you need to be obedient to? Have you received Christ? Have you surrendered your full life to Him? Nothing holding back. Are you all in? Are you burdened today for the state of the world or for your family or for a loved one? Our altar will be open. You can come today for salvation. You can come today for prayer. You can come to join the church or, or be obedient to the Lord, whatever He's asked you to do. But as Preston leads us today, ask yourself, am I living as a rebel? Or have I really kissed the Son and been surrendered to Him? Would you please stand?